My name is Justin DeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to get intense and manic and crazy, because we're talking about Andre Zuvowski. I know I said that name incorrectly, so I'm just going to call him my pal Andre from now on. That's right. We are on a first name basis. We will both be calling him Andre, <laughs> yes. which is ridiculous. It would be ridiculous to do an episode about Fellini where we just called him Federico <laughs> the whole episode. Uh, we call him yet, Fred because we, we're good friends with Fellini. And a pitch at Pong, we're a Sathakul. I called Joe. Zuwowski. I could try Zuwowski. No, I'm going to call him Andre. I like, I like Andre. Let's do it. Now, this is a filmmaker that I think that neither of us were very familiar with we had seen possession of course because we legally have to but beyond that i think i had just kind of dipped in here or there and there wasn't anything that made like a huge impact on me that i was like i gotta see the rest of his filmography i felt with like something like possession and reading about him i had gotten a pretty firm grip on what kind of filmmaker that he I was. i always had him filed away as for further research because i liked possession when i saw it almost a decade ago uh, I knew there was a lot of interesting stuff in there, and I knew also that he was part of this particular wave of Polish filmmakers, people like Roman Polanski, Jerzy Skolomowski, I'm probably pronouncing that name wrong, uh, people, people like them who were of a particular time and place and political situation. And I always saw that and I thought, wow, that looks hard to parse. So, you know, left him for a while. I mean, the thing about Andre is that he is a filmmaker that like his pictures are so intense and in your face that they are almost the opposite of what people think of like art house filmmaking. They're difficult in a different way. In interviews, he loved to say stuff like, you know, I don't want to make boring films that you see at con. I want to make films that like scream in your face. And I mean, there is that advantage to them versus, you know, the other stuff like, Bergman, for example, when you're talking about those like ossified, this is what art house filmmaking is. Well, his style is very assaultive. Uh, you've got a camera that's constantly roaming through r- rooms, circling characters. He'll do things like drop music in and out of scenes at random. The acting is generally very big. Everybody is always yelling and throwing things at each other. Oftentimes, it seems like the movie itself could explode with passion. And that's not even getting into the political allegory side of the movies, which adds to the sense of disquiet and alienation. Um, I'll just read something that Ben Sachs wrote in the Chicago Reader. He said, all three of those Polish filmmakers I mentioned, Polanski, Skolomowski, and Zulowski, were old enough to remember the end of the war when the Nazi occupation gave way to the Soviet occupation without so much as a moment of self-rule between them. From the 1970s to the end of the Cold War, Poland was a sovereign nation for only 25 years. One can easily see why Polanski, Skolomowski, and Zulowski, or Zulowski, or however you pronounce it. My good friend, Andre. All have been drawn to psychological horror, black comedy, and defeatism. These are central aspects of Polish history. Something difficult to grasp with his pictures is that there's uh, Bunuelian surrealism that is right at the forefront, but it's not always obvious when it plays. So once you kind of like key into that, you're like, oh, okay. These intense performances are often things that I would associate with dramatic films reaching a climax. But because in his pictures, they start 
start at 100 right away and they're already abstract, you're like, okay, where am I? What do I grasp onto to create some kind of emotional pull in this? And it can sometimes be difficult in his filmography. I also get the sense that Polish history or Polish film history is a difficult thing to track because there was the Nazi occupation, then there was the Soviet occupation. These filmmakers all, to varying degrees, butted heads with the Ministry of Culture, the censorship in Poland. They all became, I guess, itinerant filmmakers, cosmopolitan filmmakers. Andre, in particular, who made films, you know, co-productions in France and Germany. So it's hard to get a handle on, like, what Polish cinema is spiritually and geographically. I don't know, maybe somebody from Poland would disagree with me on this. I mean, we are coming into this not only as people that are not completely familiar with uh, the Polish filmmaking scene, but also this filmmaker himself is something that we were assaulted with throughout this week as I tried my best to get a grip on his filmmaking style as a, a presidential election dragged on for a week. And so you're like, all right, What's going on here in social media? All right, now I got to go watch Possession. <laughs> and it's being like slapped in the face in two different directions. It's true. This wasn't necessarily the filmmaker I was in the mood to watch this week. Although I did watch four of his movies. I uh, connected to them to varying degrees. Some of them moved me very deeply. Some of them not so much. But it was a fascinating world to spend a week in. Let's start with the like not so much just to get the bad out of the way first. Which you message me and you're like, I'm watching. On the Silver Globe, and I was like, "Uh oh." So, on the Silver Globe, I think some uh, some fans of Andre would call this one of his best films, mm-hmm. um, it, and and it is a remarkable film. I mean, there is nothing else like it. Um, it's an incredible object. I I hated watching it. I hated being in it, but I certainly respect it. It's based on one of his uncle's famous novels, and it was, in fact, the most expensive Polish film of all time until the Ministry of Culture shut it down in 1977 after it was about 80% shot. I'll try to summarize the plot, which I found very difficult to keep a track of while watching it. Astronauts land on a distant planet. They're stranded there. They create a new civilization, basically by accident. They either die or become persecuted. Generations later, they are worshipped as gods or myths. So that's Act 1. After that, years later, scientists on Earth, our Earth, discover a video transmission from that planet made by those astronauts. Our Earth has fallen into disrepair and decay. The other planet, it has breathable air, drinkable water. It might be an alternate Earth. So an astronaut named Merrick goes to find the planet. And by the way, a peculiar element of the plot is he is encouraged to go by his wife who is having an affair. So it's basically to get to get him off Earth. <laughs> I mean, I thought you were going to say a peculiar element of this film's construction is, like you previously mentioned, it was incomplete. So a lot of it is shots uh, running through uh, urban centers as... Andre's voice uh, explains what he would have shot if he had been able to. That's right. It was completed over 10 years later in 1988 with all of these uh, interstitials and fill-in-the-blank moments. Uh, in the last act of the film, Merrick lands on the new planet. He finds that the people there have been waiting for him as their savior, or waiting for a savior-like figure, a Christ-like figure. Uh, he's worshipped as a god, but he eventually realizes that he is a pawn in these systems that have emerged. Now, I understand that the reason that the production was shut down, the reason it was censored at the time, was because 
Andre equated religious power and state power. And secondly, he suggested that both of these things were corruptible. And that was not a message that was acceptable in communist Poland at the time. Ugh. How dare he say something that everybody know is true? And in the final version, I watched this actually years and years ago. All that I remember are the interstitial parts where it's just like in the modern day to fill in the blanks and a shot that was essentially cannibal apocalypse time a thousand where it was like somebody with a stick through their mouth, but it was like a hundred of them as the camera kind of glides over them. And that's like the one image that's stuck in my mind. I mean, this film is filled with like shocking images, but the kind of connective tissue has fallen away from my memory. When this movie ended, you said it was difficult. What did you find difficult? Was it just you didn't have anything to grasp onto narratively? Yes, I had a little trouble following the plot. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a little trouble I guess, connecting with it. And and I realize that this is all my fault, but I had a little trouble connecting with the uniformly aggressive and over-the-top acting style, the dialogue that is wall-to-wall, heavy philosophical and religious, you know, dense musings, and the visual style, which, as usual with Zalowski, is constantly abrasive and assaultive. I mean, it's one incredible image after another. Yes, it is. Um, it's an amazing object. I was shocked to hear him say uh, during a commentary track that if he could make three to four hour movies, he would because he prefers them because it allows him to explore the psychology of his characters. When when I watch his pictures, I'm like, I got their psychology like 10 minutes in and you're just kind of like hitting me over the head with it again and again. Well, a little context for where this movie came in his career. He was born in a uh, Lviv USSR uh, in 1920, which is now part of the Ukraine. In his young adulthood, you know, he saw the political changes and faced the persecution that anybody would have in that area at that time nearly died under the Nazis, then almost immediately found himself an artist working in a repressive Soviet regime. In 1972, he had a film called The Devil. It was his second film, and it was banned officially for blasphemous imagery, although the film was very obviously an allegory for the government cracking down on dissidents. I mean, I watched The Devil and his first film, the third part of the night, and he was following the path of, I feel like, the European filmmaker. First picture, World War II one, done in his kind of wild style. Second picture, period film. But it's really commentary on the present. And then when we get on On the Silver Globe, this is his big sci-fi one. So he's like hitting all those beats that I almost associate with the kind of European masters. Someone like Tarkovsky, for example, who had a kind of similar career path. After The Devil, it was clear that he was not welcome in Poland anymore. So he did what filmmakers like this often do. He went to a more hospitable country, France, and made 1975's The Most Important Thing, Love, which is one of his most successful and popular films, and which I also watched this week. It was a massive financial success. Like, it defined him in France as a figure who could just continue to make movies. And so this one is filled with stars. You got Romy Schneider, you got Fabio Testi, the star of tons of Italian Eurocrime films, like the Heron Busters, and of course, Klaus Kinski, giving a very committed performance in this. It was actually kind of great to see Klaus Kinski in this movie because it was one of the rare examples of a movie that is uh, worthy of Kinski's talent that he was in, and a movie where 
the style is perfectly in sync with his performance style. Uh, I mean, I wish he and Zalowski worked more together. I have a feeling they probably butted heads while they were working, and that's why they uh, didn't get together again. The plot is centered on a love triangle between a photographer, played by Fabio Testi, who falls head over heels in love with a kind of softcore porn actress, a struggling actress, played by Romy Schneider. She has a husband, uh, Jacques Dutronc, Testy is obsessed with Schneider and becomes obsessed with helping her career. So he borrows some money from some shady people and puts it into staging a production of Richard III. Richard III will be played by an eccentric actor, played by Klaus Kinski, and Schneider is given the role of Lady Anne, and she kind of struggles in this production a little bit, not entirely feeling worthy of it, also struggling with her emotions in this love triangle between Testy, who she loves, and her husband, who she also loves. And like a lot of his films, this centers around a love triangle, where everyone is always as intense as they possibly can be, until it reaches the unavoidable tragic conclusion either one of them dies two of them dies or all of them die love is a very difficult thing in the world of andre people are constantly hurting each other love is driving them to ruin and yet as annie hall teaches us but i need the eggs you know (laughs) love is the most important thing and i think if i have trouble connecting with this movie i I did like this movie it's quite compelling Uh, extraordinary performances it's difficult not to be impressed with his just like sweeping style through every single moment of it and also how about that scene where they're all in a restaurant reading a negative review of the play and in his fury klaus kinski picks a fist fight with this kind of bougie guy who's in the restaurant, beats him, and then takes off with the guy's two girlfriends. <laughs> My description's not doing it justice, because when you combine Kinski's performance in a scene like this with Zulawski's, um insane camera work... Uh, you know, it is pretty ecstatic. Something that I found fascinating watching so many uh, Zalowski films is that when I think of one scene that defines him, I think of the what's called the abortion scene in Possession, when Isabella Johnny is just going crazy in a subway tunnel and the camera's kind of shaky and following her. When I, That's almost the antithesis of his style because as he kind of keeps making movies and you watch a lot of them, what he does is the camera is always gliding on Dolly Track because then that just makes the intense performances going on in front of you feel that much just out there. The fact that, like, there's a stillness and a movement to the camera while the actors are just bugging their eyes out, just drooling and screaming (laughs) all of this emotion. Well, let's talk a little bit about possession, because I feel like the visual style has kind of elements of both of what you're saying so i'll just say what the plot is quickly it stars sam neil and isabella johnny as a married couple in west germany who are undergoing a painful breakup sam neil is also a spy by the way (laughs) a james bond figure if you will (laughs) yes the couple is attempting a reconciliation they were estranged for a while but it's not working she's been having an affair with a man played by heinz bennett She's also been exhibiting some very strange behavior, and at some point, we learn that she's living a double life. She has another apartment where she's living with this strange, gooey, Cronenbergian beast creature who she has sex with. So something, and we're going to spoil Possession, which I feel like is a movie that can't really be spoiled. (laughs) Like, if you tell someone like, oh yeah, 
Isabella Downey, she makes love to some squid guy. You'll be like, well, I got to see this with my eyes. Is that when I listened to the commentary of it, the director said, oh, you know, what I didn't clearly kind of show in the movie is that Isabella Johnny, when she has that kind of abortion scene, what she gives birth to is a squid baby that then grows to kind of man size and she has sex with it. And then eventually that squid thing turns to Sam Neill, which actually makes you watch the movie in a completely different way because what the plot essentially leads to is that Isabella Johnny's in a love triangle with Sam Neill and that other guy. And the kind of psychic trauma takes flesh into the squid thing, which is kind of her psychosis, you know, just made physical, which is funny because it's an extension of what we talked about before, David Cronenberg's The Brood. And like The Brood, this one was inspired by the filmmaker's own breakup with his real life wife and mother of his child. So this is a movie that has kind of scarred me in a way because I watched it with someone who was so deeply moved by it that it ruined the rest of their day. And I've heard people have the same reaction. And it's interesting to me because like Isabella Johnny's performance is so intense that there was kind of a reflection there or fear that struck these people very deeply. I understand that Andre did some odd acting techniques working with the two central performers like for days they were basically isolated with him and they did these intimate acting exercises where they were encouraged to express all their deepest emotions i read in that chicago reader piece that he was very influenced by a polish theater director jersey i'm going to mispronounce this jersey grotowski who had these theories of performance as a total act, quote unquote. And I assume that involves dissolution of the barrier between art and life of some kind. Sam Neill to this day refuses to talk about the movie or be interviewed about it. And he said it's because he had such a bad experience with one of the people that was involved. And if they pass away, maybe then if he's still around, he said, he'll talk about it. And considering that the director has passed away, I think we can take a guess of probably the person that he had difficulties with. Interesting. Well, I mean, I don't want to tell Sam Neill he's not entitled to his trauma, but he should be proud of this film. Oh, yeah, he's great in this film. Pre-Jurassic Park, Sam Neill acting crazy, sitting in a rocking chair, going back and forth. Because even when the camera isn't moving in this film, just there's something wild happening on screen. Almost as if the director is terrified that the audience will be bored at any moment. I'm glad you brought up that rocking horse scene, because that leapt out at me too because it's like you don't often in movies see a scene where like something is going from the background to the foreground to the background to the foreground the way it is in that it's kind of almost nauseating because it's like this is not what we're supposed to see the camera just static as he's like having a, no- a conversation going back and forth there are a lot of scenes where as you mentioned the camera is kind of gliding through a room like it starts at one end of a room and then it goes to the other end very slowly very elegantly and then there are all these scenes where the camera is twirling around people where where it's a handheld camera that's kind of running after the actors trying to keep up so there's a mix of moments where the movie feels in control and then moments where it feels out of control and all of this combines to a very kind of nauseating and disquieting viewing experience I was shocked to learn that considering his films are so intense and in your face, that Zorowski actually hates improvisation, that he wants everything before he gets there to be completely prepared, and then they can just go at it. And I guess the performers, within the context of what he expects, can then do their thing and push it as far as they can. Adding to the kind of disquieting or disorienting feeling of the movie is the political allegory that's at the center of it. 
It's set in West Berlin very strategically. The first image we see in the film, I, I believe the first image, or at least one of them, is of the Berlin Wall. And then we see another image of a cross on the West Berlin side to denote that somebody was killed there by occupying forces. I have a quote here from Andre where he said, Evil for us in the communist countries had a very material face. You could pinpoint it. You could say, this is evil, the system is evil. But then, how come it visits the young woman who is not evil? Is it in all of us? Do we nurture it in us? Or is it from outside and plunging into us and changing us? So East Berlin is used strategically as this, like, encroaching evil, this strange no-man's land or this unknown zone of evil on the other side of a kind of normal and bougie city. Although, I don't know, I say normal and bougie, but he shoots West Berlin. Cold and empty, and it feels like the only kind of heat uh, emanating from anything is people reacting in horror to stuff happening around them. Yeah, like there are scenes at cafes where there's nobody in the cafe, people wander the streets, on gray days, all the architecture looks very crumbling and there's nobody around. You don't feel at home anywhere in the I movie. I think this is a movie that people react to very strongly uh, as far as filmography goes because the uh, central emotion is so pure. It's Sam Neill and Isabella Johnny and of course the squid monster, but it's that kind of central triangle that defines all of it. I think the other films that we talked about, they're more complicated, which I think kind of muddles sometimes his histrionics. It makes it difficult to connect with. When here, because it is so clearly the dissolution of a relationship, something that anybody of a certain age has experienced, that you can reflect yourself in what's happening. Yeah, and the two central performers are very, like, powerful. And, you know, I think Sam Neill and even Isabella Ajani, I know Ajani has that famous scene halfway through where, like, it's a five-minute scene of her freaking out. But otherwise, I don't think the performances are stylized in quite the same way as like Klaus Kinski is in the other film. You know, they're they're more uh, grounded performers. I mean, I also watched uh, Mad Love, his film from 1985, and that one is being punched in the face repeatedly because it's essentially those French gangster or cinema du look films that were coming out around that time. But it's just so complicated and so baroque and all over the place that it's a lot of fun, but it's like, oh my God, it's too much. Even at 100 minutes, oh, my stomach is full. I can't eat all of this stuff that you keep stuffing down my throat. I mean, we both watched his last film, uh, Cosmos, and that's an interesting experience because his style is still as potent as it's always been, but now it's disconnected from the kind of milieu where he was making Possession and Devil and is now firmly in the kind of digital, cheaper-looking French style. I felt that too, big time. Yeah, like like his camera is still as active as it ever was, but it has that affectless, cold, digital sheen that frankly made me a little bit sad. Like, I've seen Possession projected on 35mm, and it's great because seeing a film projected, there's there's a certain instability in it. There's that flickering quality or that light quality that really enhances the, the mood of a movie like Possession. I think what's interesting about Cosmos, though, it viewed 
uh, as like the end of his filmography is that, you know, even after the 15 year break that he took between directing films, because Cosmos came out in 2015, he still has that energy, but you can tell that it's displaced, that there isn't that anger or that tragedy. And the style in Cosmos is more mocking and humorous. That's what he's pushing forward, even to the point that the film kind of degrades and breaks down by the end, becoming completely an abstraction, as if he's looking at the audience and going, eh, it's a joke. What do you want from me? Yeah, yeah. And I was a little bit taken taken aback by that quality of the film. Again, I found this movie somewhat uningratiating and hard to get involved in. And then at the end, it did feel a bit like, well, I'll just briefly say that it follows this young student who, along with his friend, stays at a boarding house in Lisbon, where he encounters a wide range of unusual characters, sees a wide range of uh, surreal imagery, you know, most potently the image of a dead bird hanging hanging by a noose, basically, which we see a couple of times, or ants on his food, you know, a lot of kind of Boonwellian stuff. And it's just like dense with wordplay and allusions and ideas and many references to Andre's earlier films. And it has that kind of playful thing where it's set up as a mystery that cannot be solved and every minute only makes it more and more complicated and more and more out there that will only frustrate anyone looking for something to grasp, to kind of emotionally connect with. And like I said, near the end of the movie, you're seeing multiple takes of the same shot with slight differences, almost as if he's like, ah, fuck you for trying to figure this out in any way. And if you like that that's fantastic (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's definitely i can see that if you went from possession to cosmos you're like what the hell is this is this like not another andre zalowski movie (laughs) like a parody film of some kind well at least he went out on top like doing you know what he did in a different form and it wasn't like a diluted version of that so there's that going for i'm a little surprised by how deeply moved i was by possession and how kind of not moved I was by the other stuff. I didn't see any movies this week that I didn't respect. You know, even a film like That Most Important Thing, Love, which I found very entertaining and had a lot going on in it. I think I don't connect with his ideas about love, about love being this all-consuming, potentially life-ruining thing that is also the most important thing in the world. I don't know. I'm not sure that's how I've experienced love, personally. Yeah, like, you know, the most important thing, love, or I don't know, communication, emotional honesty, that'll probably help you out as well. But I think that the reason everybody reacts to possession is, like I said before, that you can relate to that. It's something that even with the squid monster, like, everyone has had a relationship fall apart on them. While no one has gotten obsessed with an actor like in the most important thing called love, put on a show for them and Klaus Kinski is there too. (laughs) I wish my life was like that. (laughs) Oh, okay. You can have that. So that is one of our most requested filmmakers, Don Like Dinner. Yeah, we will never speak of him again. (laughs) But but seriously, I enjoyed doing that one, even, even when I didn't enjoy it. Justin, do we have any letters? Yes, we do. As per usual, you can send us letters to importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter goes, Hello, Important Cinema Club. Thanks heap for the phenomenal content you put out. Your casual, engaging styles have inspired in me a love of cinema that I am grateful for. In particularly, your dedication and appreciation of films which are not necessarily good or polished has shifted the way that I engage with the medium. It brings to my viewing experience a new joy with which I can engage with and appreciate a film on its own terms. Well, I'm glad that we could do that for you. That's great to hear. I'm really happy about that. All right, gushing praise aside. uh Uh-oh, is this when the criticism starts? (laughs) I am writing to ask your thoughts and hot takes on... Vincenzo Natale's 1997 Technology Terror Cube, 
Will, have you seen this movie as a good Canadian? Yeah, I saw it maybe 15 years ago. It is one of the kind of quintessential Canadian sci-fi slash exploitation movies. Is exploitation the right word for it? You know, kind of a direct-to-video sci-fi film that became a real cult hit, especially in the 2000s. People would like pass it around at school, you know. Cube is like the defining Canadian film. And every time I hear that, it makes me a little sad (laughs) because I like Cube. I think it's clever. I think it's fun. But like... We've got to have made something better than that by this point, right? Like it came out in like the late 90s, early 2000s. We have. It's called Things. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's just like when you talk about Canadian cinema, Cube always comes up. And it just, I have nothing against Natalie. I think he's a very talented filmmaker. It just drives me up the wall. And nothing against this letter writer either. I think it's actually a good point of, um, you know, to discuss. But it just makes me think like, why Cube? Why is this the movie that always comes up? Well, it's frustrating because there ought to be a bigger Canadian cult canon than that. Like you hear of Cube and you hear of Ginger Snaps. That's it. Yeah. And and that's it. And I feel like there probably are other movies. There are. Because they're Canadian films. Well, there's Impossible Horror, for instance. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because they're Canadian films, they don't have the same distribution networks. They, They don't necessarily have... Uh, people who are championing them. I mean, I guess there's the Canuxploitation website where you can learn about some of them. I do believe that Cube did get picked up by an American distributor, and that's how it got to so many eyes. And with this like high concept, that's how people know it as well as they do. And, you know, it got two sequels, Cube 2 Hypercube and Cube Zero. And I think that because a lot of Canadian films don't get that, they don't get that kind of attention, which is a bummer because if you look at the CanCon canon, it's all stuff that got success in America, and that's why Canada went, oh, you know what? Yeah, this is good. We can't accept that. <laughs> if that doesn't happen, it does not get accepted. But, um, you know, as far as Cube goes, I think that would actually make a fun Patreon episode, so I'm gonna have to put that in our back pocket. Oh, well, thank you very much for uh, this letter, Charles. And our next letter is from Lynn Olson, and it goes, hello, long-time caller, first-time listener. I recently started making my way through the backlog after the incredible experience that was the horror movie Mind Melt and I'm loving it so far. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, Tell people what the horror movie Mind Melter is for those who don't know. It was a 24-hour horror movie marathon that I put on on Halloween Day. And thank you so much, everybody that uh, watched and discovered stuff and suffered with me. It was a great time. And, you know, I should make this announcement now, but it'll probably come up uh, in the few weeks. I will definitely be doing a 12-hour Christmas-themed one in the December month. So that should be fun. The letter continues. Your passion for Hong Kong action that I obviously share has got me thinking about the semi-recent scene of very good Indonesia. Indonesian action movies. I'm curious about your thoughts on them. I especially love how Timo uh, Chahanto directs action scenes in a way that is very influenced by horror. We've talked a little bit about stuff like The Raid and The Raid 2, and uh, I think it's The Night Comes for Us was the Netflix film that uh, Timo directed. Yeah, I mean, I've seen The Raid and The Raid 2, but I don't really have a finger on the pulse of Indonesian action. I mean, I didn't love The Raid and The Raid 2. They were a little bit kind of ugly for me. Is that typical of the style? Uh, Yes, it is. And I think that kind of like the way that there was a Thai action movie wave that was on the shoulders of essentially one action choreographer. I think that the Indonesian action wave is the same way. That it's like on the strengths of the star of the raid, Eco, and the guy who plays Mad Dog. They are the constant that when it's like, oh, this movie's really good from Indonesia and has really good action. It's because they are involved. Like The Night Comes For Us has a kind of brutal action. I really like the raid one. I like the action scenes of the raid two. 
But I think to use that dreaded word that especially the raid two is like very pretentious in its presentation. <laughs> like it's very self-important and like the dramatics that movie runs like two and a half hours. It's very long. And I think the person who kind of articulated how there's a slight distaste sometimes to the stuff that is in those movies is Grady Hendrix. He wrote a great review of the raid two, which is like essentially these movies at a certain point become torture porn that it's not about the excitement of what you're seeing on screen or the complicated moves, but it's like, look at the human body suffer in a way that like it hurts. And that's not the same as Jackie Chan. It's like a weird high wire to try to discuss. I totally understand that. I mean, I get really worn out at the end of those raid movies and I, okay, you know, there's also a scene in the raid too, about halfway through where like the mob boss, yeah, you know it. The mob boss has like four or five guys lined up all on their knees and he's like slitting their throats one by one as he's carrying on a conversation with someone else. I remember being in a theater watching that scene and thinking, I don't like this. The frustrating thing is that like Garrus Evans, he knows his stuff. I've spoken with him like briefly at like Midnight Madness when the raid premiered. I talked to him briefly on the Kung Fu Cult Cinema Forums when he made his first film Footsteps many years ago. And I've seen him on Instagram as well. Like he loves the Shaw Brothers stuff. He was like singing the high praises of like Marshall Club, the amazing Lockhart Lung film, the Gordon Liu starring one. But I think that his movies, it's kind of the same thing that I get out of the Rob Zombie movies where I'm like, you like all this stuff. Why don't you make it fun? Is because there's a belief of like, if I try to make it fun, then it's lesser. If I make it serious and like, look how extreme this is, then it, it has more weight to it. Which, it, that's not how I feel with these movies. Like, I love the action scenes of them. I actually really like The Night Comes For Us, which is really violent. But it almost gets to that Dead Alive style where it's like, it's not like people getting their throat slits anymore. It's like, oh my god, somebody is fighting with like, um, billiard balls. Like, Garris Evans, people really like his show The Gangs of London. That TV show has like four torture sequences an episode. It is just like, oh my God, I get it. Like, you're real serious. I'm sure somebody could have a debate about like the ethics or the morality of the violence in the John Wick movies. But I will say that like that like watching the John Wick movies, I have a better time in those than I do the raid movies. Yeah. I almost want to be like, Gareth Evans, where is your like police story? Like you're goofy, like right. everybody gets to have fun. You can still make it hyper violent. That makes it more fun. But it's kind of, it's it's an idea of mood and atmosphere. But I have to say, like, I'm obviously in uh, the minority because people, I think they reacted to it positively. Like, oh, this makes it feel serious. Like this kind of stuff. When for me, it's kind of the opposite. I will always see the new Garris Evans movie. I watched all of Gangs of London because it has an amazing pilot. And then I could not believe it because the last three episodes had no action scenes. I was like, what the hell? One of the action scenes everybody shared on the internet is just a bunch of innocent people being massacred for 15 minutes. And it's like, oh my God, no thank you. <laughs> but The Night Comes For Us, again, I really like that one. So I would recommend checking it out. And I hope there's more Indonesian action movies. I just hope they're fun. You know what? I have to say, some of them were made that were fun and they just got no North American distributor. <laughs> okay, so what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? We're talking about a movie that we've been wanting to watch for a long time. All the listeners are like, can't wait till they talk about this movie. Certain listeners are going to hear this title. Like a very small number of listeners are going to hear this title and say, yes, I want to hear what they have to say about that. And it's La Ultima Pe Pelic Peliculia. 
Pelliculia? The, the Ultima Pelliculia, the film that was co-directed by Cinemascope editor Mark Perenson and that stars Alex Ross Perry. It's their fan film of Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie, essentially. Yeah, and it was on Amazon Prime and we, we decided to watch it. And we also talked a little bit about uh, art cinema uh, in general, about Cinemascope magazine, which we both have a long re- uh, reading relationship with. And what does pretentiousness mean to either of us and how does it affect the way that we approach movies. So that's the whole discussion you can find by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. By the way, I see you have a new Gold Ninja video release, which I had never heard of, but I'm actually quite excited for it. Tell us what it is. So it's a movie called War God, and it is a very impressive Keiju film that came from Taiwan. Not many countries made their own giant monster movies. Like you have Pulgasari from North Korea, you have Yungari from South Korea, but this is like a purely Taiwanese take on it. And I gotta say that when the giant uh, beings start fighting, it's great. They actually got a Japanese uh, special effects technician who worked on Ultraman and is the guy who is guilty of uh, setting the frame rate wrong on Godzilla Raids again to do all their special effects. All the Keiju heads know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. And it's really wild. It has that kind of like wacky Taiwanese feel. But then uh, near the end, giant monsters are like knocking over buildings, explosions are going off. And in that classic Taiwanese style, like it just gets real wacky and violent <laughs> as it plays along. Like no one has seen a giant monster movie like this. And I'm proud that I'm uh, putting it out on Blu-ray. It is clearly something that has a uh, follow in the public domain you can find it on the internet if you want to watch it but this package oh man i reached out to the commentary uh the keiju kingdom and the two hosts of that chris and jessica did a commentary track with me and it's great because they know way more about that stuff than i do so they can talk about like influences and where it came from uh, jessica it, her parents are actually taiwanese and she speaks mandarin so she can speak to like the cultural influences in it as well so yeah it's a great commentary track i also did a video featurette about the very small taiwanese giant monster movie subgenre there's a trailer reel where i grabbed a bunch of trailers and clips of giant monster movies around the world that are not japanese and there's a bonus feature called three head monster that is one of those little hero with a giant monster taiwanese fantasy film so a great package all around by the way can i just say i finally threw in my copy of the gold ninja video release of bluebeard which i contributed to i have a commentary on there and i watched a just featurette about the cinematographer Eugene Shufdan, uh, and it was great. It was full of great clips from Eugene Shufdan's films, from Eyes Without a Face to The Hustler to People on Sunday, and it got me all psyched up to learn more about Shufdan. So, folks, get that one, too. <laughs> yeah, get all of them <laughs> that are still available. Get the whole collection. Yeah, that's right. Well, you can't really get the whole collection because a lot of them are sold out. Just like this War God one is limited to 300 copies, it's only 10 bucks at goldninjavideo.com. Get it now before it's gone! Because, like, we just sold out of Death Warrior, which I feel if people didn't get that, they're going to be like, no! How did I miss out on that? Because that was a package in and of itself. Next week, we're going to be talking about a subject that's very near and dear to my heart. It's Something Weird Video, the Seattle-based home video distribution company that specializes, I would say, largely in mid-century exploitation films, although the stuff they've released, you know, it's ranged from movies by Herschel Gordon Lewis, David F. Friedman, Doris Wishman, but they've also done stuff like, you know, strange 1970s porn, 
uh, weird TV shows, compilations of like Christian youth scare films and anti-drug scare films, all black cast movies, just a vast range. They've essentially saved hundreds of movies from falling completely into obscurity. And for a certain period of time, they were like the reigning kind of cult DVD and VHS company. If you saw something with a something weird logo, you knew it was something you've never really seen before. And that was going to be an individual experience. We all love Criterion, but I would say that something weird video has done substantially more to expand the scope of what people understand a movie is. They kind of gave a second life to Andy Milligan, releasing a whole bunch of his films with commentaries with people like Frank Helenlotter. And, you know, many of the films they put out have been very bad. Many of them, though, strange and unusual and beautiful and mind-blowing. We'll be talking about at least two such films, the David F. Friedman joint Space Thing and one of the big Something Weird discoveries, The Curious Dr. Hump, Uh, I plan to gorge on something weird movies this week, so I'm sure I'll watch some other stuff. Maybe I'll watch Bat Pussy. Wait, don't I have an issue of 42nd Street Pete of his zine dedicated to something weird? That's right. I believe published one, right? Yeah, so let's crack that bad boy open. So looking forward to that. And so until next week, my name is Justin LeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. We'd just like to thank some of our new patrons before we continue on with the episode, and they include Andy Willick, Jacob Bowles, Jesse Briskin, and Chase East. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do this without you. And this week, we'll be having a Patreon-exclusive screening. There will be prizes. It will be tons of fun. It will be done online. And you can join us by going to the Discord that all patrons have access to. It's like a big chat room for people that don't know what that is. And make sure to be there for 8 o'clock on Friday, November 13th. And to be specific, I mean 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. As you alluded to earlier, you did a 24-hour horror movie marathon. You've done these in public at times. I remember uh, going to your one that you had last year at the Grand Girard Theater, but this one, uh, due to circumstances, was held online on Twitch. I know a lot of people took part in it. Uh, You showed a wide range of horror movies spanning the whole history of the genre, going across uh, many countries from uh, Mel Brooks to uh, (laughs) Scooby-Doo. The country of Mel Brooks and Scooby-Doo. I mean, I gave myself a really tough challenge on this one, which is I believed because i announced this only a week before it happened that i would probably just be me watching some of this stuff by myself and like i did not want to program uh something that it would be like one in the morning and i'm watching a good movie that i've seen a bunch of times (laughs) with nobody else so i was like if i'm gonna do this i'm just gonna like pick stuff that i've been meaning to watch and obviously sweat it out for seven days of like all right should this movie go here or this movie go there? Do I have a good representation of this kind of movie and this and that? And I did my best as I put it out. I can go through the movies. Like I started with a gothic Mexican horror film called The Witch's Mirror because you always start slow when you do these kind of marathons because you want to get people into it. And then I played a South Korean horror comedy that people have completely forgotten. The Bat Whisperers is the third one that I played. I'm surprised you haven't seen this one, Will. I'm aware of it. It's it's almost kind of like a proto-Batman story, isn't it? Well, Bob Kane uh, has said that it inspired him 
to make the Batman because like the main guy has like a big uh, cape and he has like a bat hat. So essentially the only thing that Bob Kane brought to the Batman, he stole from another movie and Bill Finger did the rest. I understand. Isn't the Bat Whisper shot in an early widescreen format? It is indeed like a mega widescreen format. And it's also a film. It's basically like a, you know, old dark house mystery, except it's shot in this crazy widescreen format. And every five minutes, there's an insane shot, which will like start on a miniature and it'll go up a building and through a window and then transition into like real life stuff. And so that's why it's great to watch. And it's also an early sound film. So the dialogue is basically incoherent because it's <laughs> the entire time. But uh, definitely a fascinating curiosity. Other than that, the stuff that really popped out at me, I watched or discovered a Bollywood film called Khan that's 100 minutes. So I'm like, yes, I can play this. It's essentially like one house thriller shot like a Dario Argento Brian De Palma film of a woman left alone on a rainy night and someone comes to her door wanting to use her phone on the same night that a serial killer is prowling the streets and she tries to get rid of him and it only escalates from there. A lot of people said this was their favorite one. And it just goes to show if anyone who runs a boutique Blu-ray label who can license stuff like, you gotta get in on this Bollywood train. Like, there's stuff to be discovered. This one is 100 minutes. It's an easy program. Like, people will watch this. And other than that, I played The Flesh Eaters, which was a uh, 60s movie, which is really great. It's a proto kind of gore film, black and white, that kind of has H.G. Uh, Lewis style, like, violence happening in it, even though it's like a throwback to the 50s uh, kind of science fiction stuff that people like Roger Corman would made. A big hit was called Fatal Exposure. It classified as a shot on video film even though it was shot on 16 millimeter but then edited on video and it's about <laughs> it's, it's american psycho where it's like a guy is just murdering models that he meets but the gimmick of it is that he talks to the camera all the time so he's like hey so you're probably wondering what i'm doing here and like while he's doing stuff like killing them or murdering them and he's the grandson of jack the ripper and his name is jack t rippington <laughs> which shows the kind of sense of humor this movie has i also watched a Shaw Brothers picture that I had never seen called Portrait of Crystal and that uh, was very impressive too because you've seen the kind of like late period gory Shaw Brothers film right Will? Oh love that stuff yeah Boxer's Omen, that kind of thing. And this is probably the most demented one I've ever seen. It's 75 minutes long. It feels like Eisenstein at times. There's like jump cuts and it's all over the place. You watched a recent Terror Reed vehicle called Art Art of the Dead, and you seem to have liked it. I did like it. This is one that me and Peter were going to play at What the Film Fest. Uh, I hadn't seen it. Peter had. It's directed by Rolf Konevsky, who is most famous for making a movie called There's Nothing Out There that was released by Vinegar Syndrome. And he is a guy... I, it would be fascinating to interview him about his career. I'm thinking about that. I should reach out to him because he made this film as an 18 year old that got distribution, but then none of the Hollywood came calling, but he's like, I still want to keep making movies. So what he ended up doing was directing soft core stuff, like real bottom of the barrel soft core stuff. And slowly but surely every now and then he'll make like kind of like a sex film. And then he'll make something like art of the dead, which is like a very energetic film where like paintings come alive and like kill people kind of like, uh, you know, a classier Velvet Buzzsaw, that <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal movie that played on Netflix. And I also watched one that Will has seen, Dracula Dead and Loving It. And I'm sorry to say it's the only film on the list I have seen. <laughs> and Dracula Dead and Loving It is kind of amazing only because 
Mel Brooks for his final feature film thought what the world needed was an almost shot for shot remake of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, but you know, cheaper and with a few more jokes. <laughs> his his final will and testament. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm sure he made it and he thought, this is my Gertrude. This uh, is my Sallow. This is my last statement. <laughs> did you watch any horror films around Halloween, Will? Yeah, you know, I watched horror films all month and on the day, God, it, it looks like I watched five of them. Isn't oh that insane? God. <laughs> yeah, that is insane. I started with Al Adamson's Brain of Blood. You know, I wanted to knock off another one from the Al Adamson box set. <laughs> Al Adamson, for those who don't know, a kind of like sub-Ed Wood American mm. filmmaker. Uh, that one had some larfs. Then I watched a movie that I should have known better than to watch, Luigi Cozy's Contamination. Oh, I, I famously said that one sucks, and you're still like, but what if it doesn't? <laughs> what if it doesn't? Yeah. I know. Well, I was promised an alien ripoff, and it had a musical score by Goblin. Oh, so I thought, well, score too. at least that'll be good. And, you know, it has probably about five good minutes mm. scattered all through. Yeah, just chest exploding. That's it. Chest <laughs> explosions, and there's a big gooey alien at the end. I liked that. Mm. A lot of boredom in between all that. Oh, God. So boring. I watched uh, an old classic, The Raven, with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. The true um, auteur behind D Detour, Lou Landers. <laughs> probably his best film. And, you know, when you watch The Raven and then you compare it to The Black Cat, you can see why Edgar G. Elmer is an artist and Lou Landers... Made, like, 150 movies? <laughs> I mean, The Raven is fun, though. It's got Lugosi and Karloff at their most iconic. Lugosi, in particular, is just totally over the top. I watched a movie that I had never seen before... Uh, a movie called The Others, uh, starring Nicole Kidman. I bet you've heard did of it. Did you get spooked with your significant other watching this movie? I certainly did. Uh, I was actually a little bit disappointed by this one. I found it... Uh, especially its ending, right? You had to be there when it came out, when all the movies had that ending. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was disappointed by that. But, you know, things really rebounded for the last film of the day, which was Frankie and His Pals, a shot-on-video movie made in a small town in California, uh, sort of a comedy, I guess you would call it. Um, yeah, at one point, Frankie farts and blows away a wall, right? That is correct. Uh, Fra Frankenstein, the Frankenstein monster, Dracula, the Wolfman, a hunchback, and uh, another uh, the mummy. They've been uh, trapped in a mountain, buried there in a mining town for 100 years. They burst out, and they're trying to find buried treasure, but instead they get distracted by a local dance hall slash maybe, a th maybe it's a cat house. <laughs> And, you know, they judge a wet t-shirt contest. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but isn't it like two hours long? Like, you feel that running time. That's what people have told me. It's 85 me. minutes, but like it feels two hours long. <laughs> I mean, it runs out of plot after 10 minutes. <laughs> I'm very excited to check this out. Unfortunately, Bay Street Video has not received it. It may have been an Intervision exclusive from Severn Films, the company that put it out. So maybe I'll never see it's it. It's worth a look. You know, I'm probably not going to watch it again, but it's it's got it's got its charms. You know, after all of this, you know, when I finished the 24 hour movie marathon, basically the one thought that went through my mind was I will never watch another horror movie again. <laughs> No, thank you. Let me throw on an elephant sitting still, please. <laughs> <laughs>